In the first part of the programme Remembering Makariti last week, we heard about the early life of Maggie Papakura. This week, her life story picks up in 1912, when a concert group returned to Aotearoa after touring England and Australia. Despite favourable publicity, the trip was not a financial success. Half the group also opted to remain in London, including Mita Topopoki's 15-year-old granddaughter, Tetai. The chief had personally promised her parents the girl would return safely. A hostile reception was accorded the leaders of the Maori touring troupe on their return from London. The feeling amongst the Rotorua Maoris has been running very high for some time past concerning those who had organised the tour, and on arrival of the party at the railway station, there was no demonstration of welcome. The party proceeded by special bus to Whakarewa Rewa, and there the pent-up ill-feeling against the leaders took a sensational turn. Angry words led to blows, Maggie Papakura being the chief storm centre. Maggie Papakura, the much-travelled and much-boomed Maggie, ran into a real Donnybrook fare-up at Whakarewa Rewa the other day, in the row which followed the arrival of the Maori troupe of entertainers back from London without a bean in their pockets, the silvery-tongued guide nearly had her head broken. It must have been a lively affair, that welcome home. Maggie is personally very unpopular amongst her people, and that unfortunate tour of the Maori party hasn't improved matters. Weightier arguments than words were used to press upon the well-known guide the opinions of her compatriots. A sister of Aparo, who died at sea while crossing the Indian Ocean, aimed a blow at Maggie, when one of the troops stepped in and warded it off with his arm, which was broken in three places. Mita Taupopoki was also cut across the face, the weapon being used a stick. Afterwards, something in the nature of a general melee is said to have taken place. Maggie Papakura has not, up to the present, returned to her worry in the native settlement, but is staying at the Geyser Hotel. Maggie will have more peace and honour away from Geyserland. You will be surprised to hear that I am back in England. Makariti wrote to her friend, T.E. Dunn. I did not let them know in New Zealand or Australia that I was coming to England, and only my relatives and friends knew. I did not want my movements to get into the papers. Besides, I had retired from public life many months ago and have no wish to have my name in print again. I am married to Mr. Staples Brown, whom you have already met. I want you to meet my Tani again. Very few people know I am in England, and I do not want anything to go to the newspapers. Makareti's efforts to stay out of the limelight in England were successful, but we get glimpses of her life as the lady of three country houses and her letters to Dunn. Kia tune, e hoa. Tēnā koe kōrua ko Mrs. Tune. Greetings to you both and family. By rail this morning, Dick sent you a brace of partridges. The shooting yesterday was a huge success. You know, few people know the work that she did during the war, looking after the soldiers, um, looking after the wounded, um, dashing around, taking care of people constantly, opening up her various homes. She had um, three households. 
Um, and then after all of that, um, stirring up and fundraising for the erection of a rather maudlin pietà, which was commissioned by an Italian or from an Italian sculptor and is now in the church at Oddington on a Māori carved plinth, you know, which in itself is, is, is extraordinary, and um, in which the actual inscriptions, the words, are in both languages, both Māori and English. It was only the 1920s, you see, and uh, cultures don't always mix very well, and uh, although Maggie had been educated in all things Māori and all things European, and so on and so forth, and she'd done her job with her concert. She'd been introduced to royalty and all that sort of thing. But you don't know a person till you live with them. You see, well, uh, whichever culture you try and marry with another culture, there's got to be a clash because each one would cling to their own culture, you see. And since... Uh, Staples Brown was one of the, uh, well, shall we say, rich and well-educated English family. He would want everything English. And despite Maggie's education and her attempts, she could not possibly uh, appear as an English rose, as it were, you know. So I should think that would be it. It was cultural slight differences, mm. you know. And uh, so they got divorced. It's astonishing to consider that someone like Margaretti, a forceful, dynamic, visionary Māori woman and someone exceptional for her time, actually gave away a life of success and glamour and no small achievement in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and relocated herself here to Oxford and um, to the spires and hallowed halls of the university and, of course, this institution. You can't work here for long without knowing about her because of the um, intense interest that there is in her um, from New Zealand, but also um, sort of within the museum itself. It's also... I think ex extremely interesting and valuable for an anthropology museum to have material that was given given to it directly by um, someone with such a strong connection to the material. So this is material from her family that um, she had very strong connections to. So if the museum has sort of acquired uh, uh, not just the objects but a real sort of sense of, of their importance, I think. Well, I remember her because I went to school in the same road in Oxford that she lived in, Warmborough Road. And on Wednesdays, uh, we used to get half a day. Well, it was up to me to nip down the road to my grandmother's and have lunch, you see, and then my father would pick me up. And that's the most I remember of her, is during that those periods, because... Uh, she, my mother and she, or she and my mother, didn't get on, so uh, she didn't get invited out to Oddington, 
and my mother never went to see her in Oxford. Only my father went to see her, so uh, we didn't see a lot of her, you know, but I used to go there on Wednesdays and have lunch, and I can remember all the uh, tyres and cloaks and things like that that were hanging about the place, you know. It used to frighten me a bit then, because I was <laughs> only seven. <laughs> what was she like? Well, she was kind enough, and she certainly provided you with food, but she used to dress in these long black clothes. And the thing I remember most was she used to wear a big wide-brimmed black hat, and she'd come creeping through with your lunch like that. I thought she was a witch, you know. <laughs> uh, there was, I think, uh, genuine interest and genuine respect Oxford, as well as being this sort of ivory tower elitist institution, is also an extremely democratic one. Once you're in, you're in. Once you're part of Oxford, you're part of Oxford. and um, uh, So everybody uh, gets treated in the, the same way. And I think that, that uh, you can see that through the sorts of records of meetings. She was a member of the university. A member of the university, a member of the uh, University Anthropological Society. Um, and uh, you know, reading you know, Penniman's introduction to the old-time Maori, uh, you get, just get the sense of, of uh, equality and mutual respect. Those of us who knew her can never forget the slight turn of her body which set the pew-pew skirt curling and uncurling, or the graceful and intricate movement of the poi balls in the canoe song composed by her sister Bella, or the thrill of the motion of a weapon which she took from our awkward hands and held as it should be held. When she wore Maori dress, she became not only her former self, but all her people. And it was not only the chieftainess who stood before us, but the Tangata Whenua, the lords of the land. No people ever had a better ambassador and interpreter than the Maori had in her. I think she must have been lonely, because uh, she was a stranger in a strange land, and apart from the colleagues that she worked with, how do you break into a cold society? It's difficult, you know. It's not now, because people have got used to different nationalities living everywhere, you know. But in those days, England was for the English and nobody else, you know. That was the attitude. And then in 1926, she came back. I am delighted to be back in dear old New Zealand. I have so looked forward to my visit to my Māori people and their friends. And it was then that she was made welcome because the people here had realised that it wasn't her fault that the youngsters were left in England. So they made a great big fuss of her then. But she came back to verify facts and things for the book. Well, I met her first in person when she came back from England to Rotorua, to Wakarewarewa here, back in, around about 1926, the mid-20s mid anyhow. And uh, we were living in the Tuhorumatakaka, that's the meeting house just up here. And that was Maggie's house, you see. And she came to live with us. And uh, that's the first time I ever met Maggie. Makeriti, we, we, we called her then. It, it's difficult to... Uh, to portray in words the look of Maggie, but if you can picture uh, Queen Victoria with her big bust 
and sitting in a high-backed chair and looking down at her people, her empire, then you've got an idea of Maggie as she, when she came to Rotorua. She had this, you know, look of arrogance about her, without being too snobbish. But she had uh, a regal look about her. She was majestic. She was beautiful. And there was no doubt about it. I, I'm not mincing words. And I'm not exaggerating her looks when, when she came. Uh, the, the whole of, of Hoka and Rotorua knew she was a beautiful woman. And when you talk of beauty, it's hard to explain just what beauty is. They say it's only in the eye of the beholder. But everybody admired her for what she looked like and how she spoke and how she uh, carried herself in public and in private. When she went back to England, we were living in Auckland, and she came and stayed with us, waiting for her ship to sail. That's when I saw her. Well, I had to give up my bedroom. I'd grow and said, oh, and I had to, but my bedroom faced the east and uh, the sun used to come in and that's the vivid picture I have of her sitting there combing her hair and she had beautiful hair and the sun would stream in through the window you know and the hair would sort of glisten and that's the living memory that I have of her oh she was beautiful her, she had very fine, fine features. And Maggie was one of those who, who came back from England and inculcated things which are of value to us, things Māori. And when she spoke with this Oxford accent, you know, it, it inspired us to, to speak just like her, you know, uh, that type of uh, language. <laughs> and uh, we copied everything she did. She uh, inspired us, really. She inspired us with, with the fact that uh, she spoke such perfect English and perfect Māori, which, you know, which is strange. Uh, a lot of Māori people, they spoke Māori fluently, but they couldn't speak English fluently, uh, apart from being uh, engrossed in conversational Māori. To describe Maggie, she was meticulous. She was uh, very particular. Even in the way she ate, the way she, she used to teach us how to hold a knife and fork at the table. She was that type, uh, and she was so strange, uh, insofar as we were concerned. You know, the old five fingers were the forks <laughs> in our day, and uh, uh, when she looked at us eating with our fingers, uh, it didn't go down too well with her. But she had to remember, she was brought up in that environment with fingers, when grandmothers fed their children, not by regurgitation, but by chewing the food in their mouths and giving it to their youngsters. And Maggie, I would think, was brought up in the same way, as a baby. I can't even remember whether I said anything to her. Well, she stayed with us about 10 days, I think, before her ship sailed to go back to England, and she wasn't back there long and she died. Her death was untimely, and I believe from um, the materials that I've read, I believe that she was on her way home. I have been ill for a year, and am only now getting better. She wrote to her father in 1929, 
Expenses were so great with doctors, specialists and nursing home bills. And with nurses at home that I am next week going to a cheaper house where I shall have to economise till all accounts are paid up. It has been a dreadful time which makes me shudder when I think of it. I am wondering whether this will reach you before March the 10th. I wish you, dear Father, many happy returns of the day. I am praying that you will keep fit and well. I hope to come back next year. God bless you, dear Father. Ever your loving daughter, Margaret Staples Brown. And uh, no doubt she would have come back again once the book was finished. But, of course, she went to church on the Sunday and on the Wednesday, I think it was, she had a heart attack and died. Mother died very suddenly indeed, as she was only ill 24 hours. Her son, Teonui Denon, who had moved to Oxford, wrote to T.E. Dunn. She was cycling around Oxford on Monday the 14th, and that night, at 11.30, when going to bed, her legs became paralysed. But towards Tuesday morning, after the doctor had arrived, one leg recovered its normal strength, while the other remained dead. She suffered a lot of pain all day Tuesday, and in the evening I got the ambulance and sent her to a nursing home. All this time the doctor did not consider her condition serious, and said it was only a matter of rest for a week or two. He injected morphia to ease the pain. After arriving at home, Mother was quite bright and comfortable, and insisted on my going back home with instructions to call early next morning. She died during that night, between 12.30 and 4 a.m., through hemorrhage of the lungs. Death was only a matter of seconds, according to the doctors. The people at Walker cabled to have her taken back, but her wish was to be buried at Oddington, expressed to myself and the rector. It has been all so sudden, as no one seeing Mother on Monday, or even Tuesday, could imagine her to be dead Wednesday. Mother was well on the way to completing her book, and was to present her thesis to the university for her BSc on May the 7th last. It was 30,000 words, and was almost certain of attaining her object. But alas, it was not to be. Her mother's cloak and many other ancestral cloaks and green stones covered her bier during the funeral at Oddington Church, where she had recently placed a memorial for the Maori contingents who fell in the Great War. A year after her death, her people in New Zealand erected a memorial to her at Whakarewarewa. Well, my name's Glenis Edwards, and I live in a small village of Oddington, about nine miles um, north of Oxford. And Oddington has about 46 houses, and it has a very interesting connection with uh, a Maori princess who's buried in the churchyard of St Andrew's Church, Oddington. And we actually get lots of Maori visitors, which is great. They've been coming now for, for years, since about 1973, I think they started coming. Um, and over the years, we've made friends with quite a lot of them. And normally we get one minibus load a year. They come on the Sunday nearest to... Anzac Day and they have a service in their own language around Maggie's grave and we usually have a picnic together afterwards. Most of them live in London, Maoris are settled there and then during the year we also get quite a few odd visitors singly or in twos or threes who've come over from New Zealand and they, they hear about Maggie and she's very highly respected of course and they all seem to be very sad that she's buried so far away from her own people and they keep threatening to take her ashes back to 
back to New Zealand, but they never have yet. I think they've decided that we really look after her quite well after all. And it's just lovely to have that connection. And we get lots of people coming to look at the Maori War Memorial, which is inside the church, which Maggie Papakura had put there in memory of the um, Maori soldiers who lost their lives in the First World War. And um, we've got to know a lot about Maggie over the years. What do you think it is about her and her story that, that has intrigues people so much? I suppose it's because it's, you know, a bridge, really, to the other side of the world. And she hadn't finished her book, so a colleague of hers, with the help of the elders at this end, because he had to verify everything and make sure it was all right, he finished the book. And, uh, of course, it didn't get published till 1938. Her greatest gift to um, not only Oxford University and the Pitt Rivers Institution, but also to us as um, her descendants, both metaphorically and literally, um, her greatest gift was her book, was her writing. Mm. And um, the old-time Māori, I think, is um, one of the most pivotal and exciting works to emerge from the pen of a Māori author. What I feel is particularly um, revealing about that book is that it presents to the reader and to the mokopuna what a Māori woman, what a mother, what a grandmother felt about her world. How well I remember sitting on the taumata, the brow of the hill, looking down on that dear old kainga and on the fine old people who occupied it, that old generation who have nearly all passed away. I close my eyes and I'm there. A lot of people have, have, have got interested and done bits and pieces of work on her and her story and on the collection, um, but as yet nobody has, has managed to, to put it all together and put it all in the pages of one book to satisfy it. So I mean, I think it would be lovely for somebody to do that, but there's something about her, um, uh, the complexity of her and the complexity of that story, that particular person and that particular time. Um, and the fact that the story continues. She's probably viewed, she's probably more famous now, to me, than she probably was, than she was then. She had more than one life, and I think that's what makes her really exciting. You see this frivolous, flaky female in this great big white lace bonnet, and then you have um, the arrogant, chiefly aristocrat in um, full Māori ceremonial gear. And then you have a very dour, pensive, scholarly, well-considered intellectual. She has a whole range of people. Maggie's left us enough clues to um, gauge that her life was a fascinating and interesting one and that um, uh, 
she's still an inspiration. As I say, she could adjust her compensation to the post she was taking around. In remembering Makariti, you heard in Rotorua the voices of Jim Kaonui Denon, June Northcroft Grant, and Huhana or Bubbles Mihinui. In Oxford, the voices of Makariti's biographer, Professor Nahuia Teawe Kotuku, the curator of the African and Oceanic collections at the Pitt Rivers Museum, Jeremy Coote, and Glenis Edwards. You also heard Florence Harsant and Henry Northcroft, who were both interviewed by Cheryl Cameron the Australian composer Alfred Hill talking to John Thompson in 1958, and the former manager of Thomas Cook and Rotorua, H. Desborough. Remembering Makiritsi, produced by Paul Diamond about the life of Maggie Papakura, that was first broadcast in 2003.